You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. It's funny to me, uh, we've kind of been bouncing back and forth over Exorcist 2. Yes, we have. What are your thoughts on that film? My thoughts on the film are what I would normally deem in, in, in acceptable social circles as unpopular. I actually think it's well, I, better's the wrong word. I prefer it to the original. Wow. I actually think I actually think that Exorcist Two and actually Exorcist Three are much more interesting films than Exorcist One. Um and I also think that Paul Schrader's film, um, which would have been called Dominion prequel to the Exorcist, as opposed to Exorcist the Beginning, the Rennie Harland one, are actually very interesting movies. And the first Exorcist is, is um it's it's a very well made shock fest that actually I think A hasn't stood the test of time very well and B um at times just seems a little bit sort of mechanical and and slightly dubious to me. And I, I mean, interestingly, I mean, Exodus 2, of course, is, you know, Borman's notorious flop. Um, it's, a, it's a very, very strange film, but interestingly, Borman was offered the chance to make The Exorcist. I mean, after Deliverance, he was, like I said, um, Deliverance was, was an extremely successful film. I mean, it cost two million dollars and made an enormous amount of money for Warner Brothers. So he was briefly, if you will, um, kind of at the absolute pinnacle of Hollywood. You know, um, Coppola won, I think, an Oscar that year for, what did Coppola win for The Godfather? Well, the Godfather was obviously one of the major films of the, of the Academy Awards. And then there was Bob Fosse's Cabaret, and then there was really Deliverance. So, I mean, he was in that league with Coppola, Fosse, Scorsese. And so after Deliverance, he was being offered every major project going, one of which was The Exorcist. And he actually said to the producer, um, firstly, I'm not making this film. I don't want to make this film. Because to me, it seems like a two-hour movie about exploiting and torturing a child. He also actually advised the studio not to make it at all. So I mean, to him, he found that the entire project completely repellent. So what I find really fascinating is that the studio then, some four or five years later, when they want to kind of make the, the cash-in sequel, would approach the very man who told them not to make the original and expect him to just make an ordinary follow-up. Um, you know, you talk about kind of directors casting actors, but I think also studios cast directors. And that was an extraordinary piece of miscasting. Because um, I, I mean, it's obvious to the, from the beginning that that's what Borman's going to do. He's going to do something decidedly against the grain of the first movie. So he cuts all the gore out of it. Um, he focuses on these extremely unpopular kind of views of sort of um, the, the, the power of kind of the, the, the human collective unconscious to sort of heal ourselves. I mean, he actually gives the film a sort of happy, optimistic end, despite all the destruction and fire and everything else. There's a kind of happy, happy, optimistic ending to all of this. Um, he won't give us the sort of shock effects. He won't give us the fright. In fact, um, he's not even interested. I, mean, I don't think in the entire movie, considering it's a horror movie, there's one calculated jump. There's a moment that's supposed to sort of terrify you. It goes for a very different kind of eeriness, um, partly which is actually in the color design. I mean, Borman is, is meticulous to a fault with color. And if you watch The Exorcist 2, um, there's absolutely no green or blue in the entire movie. 
and that's partly because he just wanted to put you slightly off guard and unsettle you. But I mean, choosing to eradicate a couple of primary, uh, primary and secondary colours from your colour palette is rather different from vomiting peace people <laughs> over everybody. So you know, his idea of trying to uh, trying to unsettle you and the studio's idea of what frightening were very, very different things to begin with. But the film itself, I mean, it's quite despite having some very interesting kind of metaphysical ideas and. Um, uh, it's very influenced by the um, philosophy of um, de Chardin, the uh, sort of French, um, I think he was a priest and kind of uh, psychologist. Um, it was very, very, very influential on Borman, along with Jung. It's one, probably one of his most Jungian films. It, that's really why I think Borman got attracted to it. And the idea of trying, what he said, trying to repair the damage caused by the first movie, which I said he found very, very harmful. Um, but where the film does fall rather short is, I think... Um, the casting doesn't help. Um, Richard Burton is just, I, I mean, what a great actor, but by this point, he's rather past it, and he just walks through the film um, in a strange zombie-like state, but he still has an amazing voice, and everything he says in the film, and some of it's quite ludicrous, at one point he says, um, I think to Ned Beatty's character, I've been here before I flew on the wings of a demon. And if you hear that in that fantastic mellifluous Welsh voice that was put on this earth to do Hamlet and Dylan Thomas, it sounds a bit mad. Um, I think if Borman had his way and John Voight had played the priest, it might have worked far better. And it also makes a lot more sense as to why um, at the end of the film there's this kind of sexual tension between the priest and the Reagan character, Reagan McNeil, because um, they would have been, well, much closer in age, whereas, you know, by this point, um, Richard Burton was old enough to be Linda Blair's grandfather, <laughs> let alone her father. Um, God forbid her lover. So that probably didn't work. I mean, there were other other decisions. And actually, Louise Fletcher oddly gives a, a terrifyingly stilted performance. I mean, she's so good in one film of the Cuckoo's Nest playing a psychiatric nurse. And in this film, she gets promoted to psychologist and gives a, a dreadfully wooden performance. But I don't know if I necessarily blame her. I think Borman at this point probably didn't have his eye on that ball because um, the, the pressure to release the film by, I think, before Christmas meant that the film had to start shooting before the final script was actually prepared. So they were writing and rewriting while they were shooting, which is never a healthy thing to be doing. Um, there were lots of problems with the special effects. Borman decided to shoot most all the film basically in the studio, which I think that's part of what looks remarkable about the movie. Um, rather than go to Africa, he did exactly the, the same thing that Powell and Pressburg are doing Black Narcissus, and he kind of recreates the exotic world. It's India in the case of Black Narcissus, but Africa next to in the studio, um, making it look completely otherworldly. I and mean, it, it looks quite quite astonishing. And I mean, on official yet absolutely correct because this is every time they go to Africa in the film it's in a dream and so I think it fits it fits beautifully with the, the kind of aesthetic but when they were filming those scenes I mean that they had sand red sand imported from Africa that gave Borman a rare tropical disease that took four months to diagnose you know it was I mean one disaster after another happened on it it's, it's kind of a miracle the film was kind of released at all um but what I still find amusing, amazing about it is just that it has this ambition to try and do something well beyond the conventional kind of Hollywood horror movie. And when um, Dominion came out, the, the Paul Schrader film, I was watching Dominion. And I think on its own terms, it's slightly less ambitious, well, it is less ambitious than Borman's film and probably therefore succeeds more than Borman's film. But I think they were trying to very much to do the same thing. They were taking a kind of Hollywood horror film franchise and using this kind of popular platform as an excuse to say something 
quite a theologically complex, but b also sort of um, quite unpopular. <laughs> you know, because you go to a horror film expecting kind of thrills and and chills and what they actually were much more interested in was kind of delving into the characters of these priests these people who had very strong doubts but actually in the case of both films um the priests kind of reconnect with their faith i think watching schrader's film um i don't know if it's brought other people back to exorcist too i think the two of them are actually quite quite kindred spirits you know sort of perverse anti um horror movies masquerading as sort of studio funded franchise horror films. So I think Exorcist 2 is one of those films that really needs, um, you know, it, given a sympathetic audience, I think it's actually a far better film than it's given credit for. I know Pauline Kael was very keen on it. Um, she's always been a bit of a champion of Bourne, but she um, she was very kind to Zardos, but she was very kind to Exorcist 2 and actually said that she preferred it to the first film. And so did Martin Scorsese, actually. Scorsese said it was a, a kind of guilty pleasure, sort of, you know, semi-flawed masterpiece that seems like um, sort of Borman's comment on the book of Job, you know, the idea that, that pure evil is just attracted to the notion of pure good, and that Reagan's character is this force of pure good, just kind of the reason she's possessed in the first film is because she has this innate goodness, and evil kind of attaches to it, but and there are other, other little things, I mean, when they made the first film, um, Blatty and William Friedkin were very clear that the name of the demon, which is Pazuzu, should be left out because it might sound funny. Borman paid no heed to this at all, and the name Pazuzu is used constantly in Exodus 2, and unfortunately, the audience found it very funny. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's, 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 it's a genuine name of a demon, but it's the least scary name ever. It's, you know, it sounds like Bozo's sidekick, really, you know, Bozo and Pazuzu. It's... So, I mean, the film does, it, it does get a lot of kind of unintentional laughs, but I think if you, if you kind of, it's one of those movies, if you meet with the seriousness of which it's made, I actually think it's quite, uh, quite fascinating, but aesthetically also, it's absolutely brilliant. The, the early use of Steadicam in that is, is, is superb. It was, um, because Garrett Brown, the man who invented Steadicam, was, was actually worked on the film partly as the camera operator, and there's some amazing kind of point of view shots from, from the demon as it flies down with the steady cam, which are really interesting. I think Borman was always kind of seeing how we can take new technology and use it to kind of push, push the boundaries of what film can do, but always to push the boundaries of the way that film could kind of relate dreams and other worlds. And Exodus 2 does that fantastically, I think. Flaws aside. Right. Well, I have to say, I haven't seen it since I was a kid, and I just remember that kind yeah. of drained color palette, thinking that it was just mm. a bad transfer <laughs> and yeah the, and just all the locusts, lot, uh, you know that's the locust scenes are i think the bits that really do, really do hold up extremely well but yeah there's lots of i mean the color palette i think a lot of people did think that something had gone slightly wrong with the photography <laughs> but it's I, I think it's exactly the way that they wanted to do it. I mean, they read a very long, detailed piece on an American cinematographer, and that's that was the look they were going for. And they wanted this kind of harsh, um, very limited color palette, lots of sort of deep blacks and reds. And it's and there is some. I, I don't, if it had the desired effect, I don't know. Because when you look at it, you thought it looked washed out and strange. He wanted it to look unsettling. And in places, I mean, some of the stuff they do is I think with um, the photography is extraordinary. And again, it's, it's all lessons learned from Lord of the Rings and actually from Zardoz. But one of the most effective scenes in the film is where they do, um, it's also potentially one of the most ludicrous scenes of the film is where they first use the, um, uh, I forgot what they call it, but they, 
where they essentially um, hypnotize each other with and put on the, put on the headbands and their minds kind of merged and they do the first hypnosis session in uh, Louis Fletcher's office. Behind them, the whole office was basically made with a kind of reflective glass that if you shined light directly onto would become see-through. Yet if you didn't light directly, worked like a mirror. And actually they have this really interesting scene where um, she's, Linda Blair's under deep hypnosis and she remembers the exorcism and behind them in the studio, behind this mirrored glass, is Max von Sydow um, recreating the scene from the original film. And it's all done in a single take and all they keep doing is adjusting the light so that at times you can see von Sydow come. It looks like a dissolve. It looks like you're dissolving between two shots, but you're not. It's all done in a single studio take. And I think that seems absolutely extraordinary. But that, that kind of use of reflective mirrors and simple yet extremely effective in-camera effects really came from the um, the experience of making Zardoz on such a shoestring budget. Huh. Well, now I'm going to have to go back and watch it again for the first time in probably 20 years <laughs> or so more, sorry. 30. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think my, my other theory is it's a crackpot kind of film conspiracy theory thing, but I, I genuinely think part of the reason why Exodus 2 failed is... Um, he had uh, Rospo Pallenberg, his co-writer on Exodus 2, and indeed um, Excalibur, Emerald Forest, and I believe Lord of the Rings, um, even though that never transpired. His wife um, followed Borman around for the shoot of Exodus 2 and wrote a book about it, which I think was partly published in a, in a magazine in serial form. And I actually have a theory that no film that's ever been kind of covered by a journalist in that fashion has ever been successful. They've all been unmitigated disasters. Even if they, the Heaven's Gate, John Huston's Red Badge of Courage, The Misfits, Dune, um, the, 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 what's the, the M. Night Shyamalan one where The Woman in the Water, um, which was covered for, for Esquire. So every time you have a journalist following you around for the making of the film, it, it just it tanks or is brutally recut by the studio or. <laughs> So I think that's just a lesson for future filmmakers. Don't let a journalist follow you around to do a complete expose because it's not going to work. As I'm sitting here looking at a copy of The Devil's Candy, the Bonfire of the Vanities one. Yep. Yeah, the Bonfire. Exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Another another prime example. 